Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And I have with me today a first-time guest, but a friend uh, who has done some work on Spurgeon, who we know is probably the most famous Baptist uh, of all time outside the Apostle Paul. Um, but uh, Alex DePrima, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist in Winston-Salem, Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem, and who's just written a book on Spurgeon and the poor. Alex, thanks for coming on. Brother, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be on with you. Hey, for first-time guests, just want to get to know you. Just give us a little bit of a background of how you came to know the Lord, how you felt kind of called into vocational ministry, and how you got to Winston-Salem. Yeah, so I grew up in a healthy local church in South Florida. I uh, came to faith when I was, I think, around 10 years old. And um, just through the preaching of the gospel in my own local church. And then uh, it was in my early teenage years that I began to develop an aspiration for pastoral ministry. Uh, kind of in part through Spurgeon's story a little bit. My pastors mm. quoted Spurgeon all the time growing up, uh, became interested in his story from a young age, and uh, thought if I could do what my pastors do, what a guy like Spurgeon did, man, what a privilege it would be. So aspired all through my teenage years and through college, that aspiration began to get more and more affirmed by elders and mentors and all of that. And, uh, and it was in my mid-20s, I entered pastoral ministry, planted Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem. Uh, we've been here, my wife and I, uh, for six years, uh, and they've been the best years of our lives. The Lord's wonderfully mm. blessed the church, and somewhere along the way, I was able to do doctoral work at Southeastern with uh, Nathan Finn, and that's uh, where I was able to study Spurgeon on a on a more academic level, and those were great years as well. Hey, so normally I like to ask just kind of some kind of personal fun questions so people can get to know you. We'll just do three or four uh, but kind of quick, think family feud, answer as quick as you can. So favorite book that's not the Bible? Uh, Ian Murray's two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Favorite athlete of all time? Oh, probably MJ. MJ, okay. Well, this, that leads into the second one, MJ or LeBron. Yeah, you've already, yeah. You've already you know, answered well, wisely. So I, I, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and big Miami Heat fan. And so I so wanted to believe that LeBron was going to be the GOAT. Yeah. And so I was on that train trying to make that argument for about seven, eight years. But somewhere around uh, probably Cleveland to L.A., I began. And then it, it didn't it help when I saw that documentary. What's it called? The Last Dance that came out. I was like, yeah, I don't know oh, what yeah. I was on. MJ, yeah. There's no denying MJ is the greatest. That that was like the beginning of COVID. So like everybody was locked in at home and they came out with that that documentary. It was it was fantastic. He, he timed that pretty well, didn't he? I think so. I mean, things just work in his favor. Um, all right. Last one. You've aspired to, you know, you said pastoral ministry in your teenage years. When was your first kind of sermon on a Sunday morning? And do you remember the text? Yeah, I think I was 17 or 18. And I preached on Philippians 121 for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It was probably a wretched sermon. I haven't listened to it. Uh, I wouldn't want to go back and listen to it. But yeah, I had opportunities to preach in my church little by little. Um, started mm -hmm. to preach with more regularity in my mid-20s. Would you have said it was an exposition? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. At, least, at least that, even if it was wretched. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it, it was an effort at expositional preaching. I love it. Um, all right. Well, let's let's turn to to talk a little bit about Spurgeon again. You've done uh, work on this, and you've got more stuff coming out. I'm going to ask you some about that at the end uh, when it comes to Spurgeon. But 
kind of what specifically made you want to study Spurgeon uh, just in general? I know you talked a little bit about this already, but Spurgeon in general, and then in particular, his kind of view of mercy ministry. Yeah, well, uh, Spurgeon is beloved by so many. What I what I love so much about Spurgeon is that uh, he transcends his camp or camps that he was in. So he's loved by Baptists. He's loved by Presbyterians. He's loved by a lot of Anglicans. Michael Reeves, uh, Anglican, wrote a book on on Spurgeon recently on his spirituality. Uh, he's loved by Calvinists and Arminians alike. Um, so everybody, you know, loves Spurgeon. But what I discovered uh, was when I, when I began to think about doctoral work, which was never in the cards growing up. I came from a blue collar background. Parents, grandparents didn't go to college. But Nathan Finn started talking about doing a doctorate with him. I had the time and the money to do it. Uh, this was before planting the church. And so mm. I said, if I'm going to study on somebody, I want to study on someone big, someone who can, uh, uh, you know, occupy my attention for the next decade or even a whole lifetime. And uh, he started talking about Spurgeon. I was amazed to learn how little had been written on Spurgeon. I mean, we, he's quoted all the time. But when I wrote my dissertation, we're talking maybe 20 dissertations mm. on him had been written before that. Whereas if you look at a guy like Edwards or Calvin or Owen, you're talking hundreds. Right. I think Spurgeon, because he's not typically thought of as like a theologian, he's more a popular preacher. He doesn't excite as much academic interest. But now we're in the golden age of Spurgeon scholarship with, with Jeff Chang and the Spurgeon Center out at Midwestern, different publishing opportunities uh, with BNH and Reformation Heritage and other groups. Um, so I, I could have written on pretty much anything I wanted to. And what was so exciting to me in studying Spurgeon uh, was that I'd always knew, known he was a great preacher uh, and thought a lot about, you know, theology and Calvinism and Puritanism and stuff like that. But I discovered he had this massive orphanage that he had 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the heart of South London mm. uh, that he was known. So my wife and I visited England several times. They have these commemorative blue plaques on different landmarks associated with famous people. And they got some connected to Spurgeon. And they'll often say, uh, Baptist preacher and philanthropist. Mm. And I'm like, nobody knows about this. I mean, I never heard about uh, the orphanage. I never heard about his ministry to prostitutes and police officers and uh, uh, the subsidized housing he provided for widows uh, through his church. And so I became fascinated by the topic. And, you know, it's funny, everybody asks me now, I wrote you know, Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. That's the title of the book with Reformation Heritage. Everyone thought I wrote that because we were having all these debates about social justice and stuff like that. But when I landed on that topic, this is 2014, 15, we weren't having the same debates back then. And so, you know, by the time I started writing the book, yeah, that was all in the background. You know, what, what, what should evangelicals think about social justice? Um, and interestingly enough, it was, I think in part, I got in some little Twitter thing with somebody who was trying to say Spurgeon was woke. And um, this is a few years ago. And I just put a comment on there like, well, no, not exactly. That, that, that wouldn't be yeah. accurate. And then, and that's actually, that led to the, you know, people wanting a book proposal and, and then the book was written. Um, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, so that's some context as to how I got into the topic. It's funny, you brought up uh, Spurgeon kind of in our circles, Baptist circles, he, you know, Arminians, Calvin's, Arminians, Calvin's all, all kind of love him, claim him. My dad one time was talking to a pretty well-known um, older Arminian pastor who said, hey, you know, Dr. Pat uh, Dr. Aiken, um, uh, he wasn't a Calvinist. And dad's like, what? Like, no, he, he's pretty clear about it. And he said, he said, now, Dr. Aiken, I've been reading uh, Spurgeon since before you were born, and I know he's not a Calvinist. And Dad's like, well, <laughs> I can't argue with that, I guess. Uh, so it is interesting. Everybody kind of claims it. It is also one of the things that 
does warm you to him. He he, he speaks uh, in, in those ways. Uh, he has that kind of popularity. Yeah, and, and the- just to settle the record there, Nate, as someone who studied Spurgeon on the doctoral level, he definitely was a Calvinist. Yeah, but, I mean, he says things you that, can you know, dispute. Like, right. He says some things you're like, well, actually, probably wouldn't even say it like that. But yeah, he, he's yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, so so Spurgeon's view on kind of social, you know, uh, social justice. What is it? Can you talk about that? What's his view on politics? Well, um, yeah. And again, get, give us something, but don't give us give away the book. Yeah, People yeah, yeah, buy sure. the book so, yeah. yeah, right. Um, well, yeah, the book goes in far more detail than I can here now. But um, the social justice question, I, I've been asked that a lot lately, and it's not an easy question to answer because. People weren't using social justice language much in in Christian circles in the 19th century. You did have guys like John Stuart Mill, who's beginning to think about that concept. Um, Even now today, what is social justice? There's lots of different definitions to that. I mean, a guy like Tim Keller, in one of his books, I can't remember which one, maybe his book on mercy ministry, he just says, well, it's the principles of biblical justice applied socially to the society. Well, who, who wants to complain with that, you know? Um, There are guys like F.A. Hayek, big economist in the 20th century, who's defined social justice basically as redistributive justice. So, mm. you know, trying to create equity uh, economically. Well, I don't think Spurgeon would have been for that, certainly. And then there's people today talk about social justice, you know, and the definition seems to often involve an ever expanding and elastic view of sexuality and sexual mm. rights and all of that. Well, so it's a hard concept to define. But I think what a lot of people are probably getting at is the relationship between gospel proclamation and social concern, mercy ministry. Right. Uh, benevolence, concern for the poor, the oppressed, the disenfranchised, where does that come in? Um, I, I would certainly say, you know, recognizing it's a bit of an anachronistic question, but I, I, I would say Virgin is going to view the proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples, and the building up of healthy local churches as the central mission of the church. Uh, and so I think to those on the far left today, uh, left-leaning evangelicals who are if you want to put the woke label on them or social justice warrior, or even those who might embrace what we call the social gospel, Walter Rauschenbusch and those folks from the 1930s, 40s. Um, is going to say you've, you've lost the mission. The mission of the church is principally a spiritual mission. It's about winning souls, winning men and women to Jesus Christ, gathering them into healthy local churches and building up the church. But to those on the right and those who maybe have forgotten uh, maybe some of the statements of our Lord with respect to, to social concern and mercy ministry. Statements like Titus 2.14, uh, uh, that, that Christ has come to redeem a people who are zealous for good works. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus speaks about this city on a hill, this light to the world. The light there is not the preaching of the gospel. It's that they would see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, pastor in the Good Samaritan, which is not about helping people just in the context of the local church, but needy people who we encounter. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Care for those who are in such straits. Well, Spurgeon is going to go to those types of passages, and he's going to say, no, mercy ministry and kindness and compassion toward needy people is actually an essential part of the church's ministry. He's not going to put it on the same plane as gospel proclamation, but he's going to say it proceeds out of faithful gospel proclamation. So he's going to say, like, to you, Nate, like, all right, you're a Christian. If, if you're a Christian at all, you've been regenerated by the grace of God. And the effect of grace upon your heart is that you should become a gracious person in your orientation toward others. If you've experienced God's mercy and his compassion, you're just going to be kind and benevolent toward others. There's this quote I, I love to share with folks, but it kind of gets at the heart of Spurgeon's view here. He says that um, uh, uh, a Christian is a philanthropist by profession. 
mm. and generous by force of grace. Mm. His point being that that those who have experienced God's grace, they naturally become kind and benevolent and compassionate toward others. Uh, he says, you know, that it used to be that wherever anyone found a Christian, he knew he found a helper. He knew he found a friend. He knew he found someone who would be interested in his well-being. So I think that's where Spurgeon is going to have a word to those of us on the right. And, and honestly, this is part of why I wrote the book. Even from my own heritage, I do feel like we in Reformed camps, Calvinistic Baptist camps, have sadly in the last hundred years left mercy ministry to some degree to the side. And it's yeah. greatly atrophied our witness. I think we have tended to think those who are concerned about you know, social activism, those who are concerned about mercy ministry, that's an impulse of theological liberalism. And we'll leave that to the liberals. That's a sign of missional drift. And I want to say, no, I'm trying to hold yeah. up a big guy in Spurgeon, big guy in more ways than one, uh, physically and otherwise, uh, <laughs> holding up a big guy in Spurgeon and saying, hey, look, here's a guy who wedded, found a way to do this, yeah. to wed solid, robust gospel proclamation, healthy church ministry with a heart that beat for needy people. And he saw his church as a, you know, a center for mercy ministry in the heart of London. We need to recover that vision for ministry in our day. What about in, in particular politics? What was, how, how did Spurgeon kind of view the yeah. Christian's role in, in, the, in the political arena? Yeah. So one of the things I, I try to argue in the book is that Spurgeon, uh, at least in academic circles, but also just in popular writing, has been represented as being far more politically active than he actually was. Mm. Um, so there's a few highlights and lowlights here. Spurgeon did speak very directly to, quote unquote, political issues at a few points throughout his ministry, but he tended to do those only when he saw those political issues as really being religious issues. So the, the, mm. the greatest example I can think of is the issue of slavery in the American South. I mean, he is vigorous and full-throated in his denunciation of slavery, to his own hurt, he loses all his sermon sales, the revenue from all sermon sales in America because of that stand, ends up, he was using all that money to support his pastor's college, his training of men. Uh, he ends up having to give up all that income, start raising funds to support the yeah. seminary. Um, but he, he said, look, this is this is a clear moral evil, and God's people everywhere have to speak out against this. And he's, he's, he's I think, positively heroic in the way he goes about that. Uh, but he doesn't, what one of the things he does argue uh, uh, is that the pulpit should never be the the locus of political wrangling and partisanship. So he's not preaching political sermons. He's not advocating for political parties from the pulpit. And he instructs his students and lectures to my students. He tells his students, don't bring politics into the pulpit. You're a preacher of the gospel. Uh, you are to be above politics. Uh, that, that, is, that, that said, he occasionally will speak to issues, again, great moral issues that were being debated in pol the political arena. But in the first instance, he wasn't trying to lobby for a political party. Now, here's where it gets controversial. Spurgeon was, you had two parties in England in those days, the Liberal Party, and the Conservative Party, kind of kind of like the Whigs and the Tories, though they don't align exactly. Spurgeon was a liberal. Now, when people hear me say that, they, they think I mean like liberal in the way we think about that today. As it turns out, the Liberal Party in England mapped on pretty well to the more conservative party in America in a lot of ways today, So they cared about. You know, free trade and open markets and stuff like that. So when you hear liberal, don't think, you know, liberal as we think of liberal today. Liberal in the 1900s in England was very different. Um, and Spurgeon was open about his affiliation with his party. He thought that mm -hmm. Christians should vote for the liberal party. The most nonconformists and Baptists in England were liberals. And he would encourage them to vote along those lines. But he usually did that outside of the pulpit. So he had the sword in the trowel. He'd sometimes write articles about upcoming elections and things like that. Um, but he was fairly reserved, I think, in those remarks on the whole over the course of his life.
Good. How was, uh, you know, Met, Met Tab, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle engaged in mercy ministry in particular? And then any, like, I mean, any anecdotes about that you might have shared in the book that might be interesting to, to yeah, share sure. as far as ways they were engaged in mercy ministry? So Spurgeon led the tabernacle to to promote all kinds of works of benevolence and mercy ministry. And like I said, by 1884, they had 66 operating out of that building. The building was open from 7 a.m. to 11 at night. I mean, it was just a, a factory of good works. And uh, many of those ministries were children's ministries. So you know, this is London in the Victorian era. I think Charles Dickens. What is it? Oliver Twist. You know, please, sir, may I have some more? Um, so, uh, you know, you have many kids who are running the streets. Uh, you have people who could barely make ends meet. You have um, no system of social welfare for people for the most part. So the church was looked at to be kind of that, that safety net for a lot of people. So tons of children's ministries where they would provide uh, education for kids, free education. On any given Sunday, about a thousand of their members would just go out in the afternoon and they'd gather kids into Sunday schools and what they called ragged schools and things like that uh, to provide both material support for children and then also education for children. Uh, they had uh, what they call street missions all over neighborhoods all across the inner city. Well, that's going to be a, a combination of, you know, providing meals, providing social relief. Uh, but also providing stations for preaching uh, and services for the poor. And those street missions would often turn into church plants. Mm. Uh, so Spurgeon planted uh, 200 churches in Britain alone uh, out of his uh, pastor's college in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So members were, they just assumed we're going to be engaged in these ministries in various ways. Uh, like I said, lots are directed to children and to the poor. Like I said, next to the tabernacle, we would have subsidized housing for uh, widows, all kinds of ministries like that. So extraordinary opportunities to serve in the life of the church and the members just got after it. He expected if you're a member of this church, you're a worker for Christ, you're digging in and, and you're going to be serving in these ways. And um, the church became quite famous for that kind of mm -hmm. ministry, that kind of work, um, which is quite exciting. Yeah. I don't know. You had a second part of that question or not? I just any, just any. I mean, you shared obviously some specific examples, but any. Oh, an anecdote. Stand out. Yeah, yeah, yeah stand out. Great, yeah. great. I got a great anecdote for you. So uh, there was a temperance activist in the 1870s, 80s named John B. Guff, G O U G H, and he uh, came to London to meet Spurgeon. They became friends, and he came there to hear him preach and spend some time with him. Spurgeon takes him to his orphanage, where Spurgeon had at any given time about 500 children in the orphanage. Uh, which is in the heart of London. And uh, while he's there with this guy, uh, John B. Guff, touring the orphanage, Spurgeon gets called to the bedside of a dying orphan. And I actually opened the book with this anecdote. Uh, so he says, oh, you know, my apologies. You're welcome to come with me if you want, but I need to go see this child. And so the kid's in the infirmary, and I don't know what his particular disease was, but he's dying. Spurgeon meets with him, and it's just this beautiful scene. Guff is there, and he kind of records what happened. And uh, he talks about how Spurgeon's praying over the boy. He's reading him scripture, um, holding his hand, you know, giving him gifts and things like that, and just comforting him in the sweetest ways you can imagine a pastor comforting a, a child in that situation. And Goff records this wonderful quote. He says, um, he said, you know, I had seen Spurgeon, um, I'm not reading, I'm paraphrasing it, but I had seen Spurgeon hold 6,500 people in a breathless interest you know, preaching at the tabernacle. I've seen this man captivate thousands. But the man that he was when holding that little boy's hand and praying over him, he was a greater and grander man than I ever knew him to be. Mm. And I just think to a culture, Nate, I mean, we've talked about this before, but, you know, pastors who get too big for their britches, they become celebrities, 
They don't meet with their people. They don't even know the names of their people. Well, no one was bigger than Spurgeon. I mean, he was a genuine celebrity. He met with politicians and dignitaries and all that kind of stuff. And yet he wasn't above at the height of his ministry, taking appointments with dying kids and kids who were sick. He spent all of his Christmases at the orphanage, giving out gifts to children. Uh, he knew the names of all his members. He took membership. He did almost uh, the majority of the membership interviews. Um, he was a pastor at heart. And um, that comes through, I hope, in the book as well. This may not have anything to do with uh, your book, and it's an anecdote as well. But I, I've heard or seen maybe somewhere online, I can't remember, that like that P.T. Barnum tried to get Spurgeon to come to the circuses here in America. Do you know much about the background of that and turned it down. <laughs> yeah, not not that particular invitation. He was invited often to, to preach yeah. in America. And um, there are probably numbers of reasons why he didn't come. It was interesting. We talked about slavery a moment ago. They started, you know, issuing death threats to him. You know, I mm-hmm. could show you the newspaper articles where people say, hey, if, if you ever sh- show your head here in the South, we're going to put a cord around your neck. <laughs> I mean, crazy stuff. Just because of it, it, it was illegal. Now, you and I live in North Carolina. It was illegal to read Spurgeon sermons in North Carolina in the late 1850s. Goodness if you were caught gracious. with a Spurgeon yeah. sermon, you were fined and it was confiscated. So he was hated wow. in the South for a long time. But no, um, you know, he he was a little bit concerned about the celebrity status. He wondered what good a tour to America could accomplish. And he was a busy pastor. I think beyond that, too, he was often in poor health and his wife was as well. And so making that voyage, I think he would have had some reservations about. He was busy. He was busy in London. That was his mission field. Yeah. Yep. Uh, who's the audience for the book? Um, and yeah, so who who should pick it up and kind of why should they pick it up? Yeah, I would say uh, pastors and lay people primarily. It's not primarily a scholarly book. I aimed at the church. Um, I hope pastors will. I, I try to leave a lot uh, on the bottom shelf for lay people to think mm-hmm. through mercy ministry and good works and the relationship between that and the ministry of the church, uh, but also have a lot there for pastors to consider in terms of how they could lead their church in following Spurgeon's example. But the book does have, it has like 600 footnotes. Um, mm. And that was there for scholars, seminary students, whoever, who want to kind of follow, you know, the footsteps of my research and, and build on what I've done. But it's a book aimed primarily at the church, and I'm hoping it will edify the church. Any just, I'm going to ask you another question after this, but any just kind of final words on why they should pick up the book? Well, I I think, Nate, not to, um, I don't want to say too much about what I've written, but I, I don't know a, a book quite like it. I think, I'll just put this out here, maybe this will provoke interest in the book. I think, Nate, that if, if we had, if there were more churches, more pastors doing what Spurgeon was doing in London in the 19th century, maybe there wouldn't have been as much fallout in the last five to seven years in our circles uh, over these issues, that if people saw this is the model that we were promoting, and if we were going hard after ministry and word and deed, that didn't become a social gospel, that didn't become wokeism, that didn't become social justice in ways that's popularly conceived, but was still robustly committed to loving and serving and helping needy people in the world, um, I think that would have provided a brighter witness. And I think I think there's a way forward here. I think there's something to build on here. And I I, I want to hold Spurgeon up and wave him in front of people and say, hey, here's here's a model that needs to be retrieved. Well said. Uh, okay, so you have more stuff coming out uh, on Spurgeon and some other books. Just tell us about some more projects. I think this one, th- has this book actually, we're, we're recording today on the, I think, 2022nd. 20, has it released technically yet? And then yes, what are some other projects that are coming and so forth? 
yeah, it's released now. It should be available wherever books are sold. Uh, with It's with Reformation Heritage. I think it's about to pop up on Amazon today or tomorrow. I, mean, I saw your copy came to you yesterday or two days ago. Or I was seeing other people. I was seeing other people wave around the book before I got my own copy, man. Um, my dad's no, said that before. He's like, guys are like, I've had it three days. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, I will copy. say working with, working with Reformation Heritage has been a joy. I really appreciate those brothers. Um, yeah. So a few more projects uh, coming up, God willing, over the next couple of years on Spurgeon. Uh, I took his lectures to my students. Uh, which is a wonderful book, but it's oh, yeah. it's so thick and it has a lot of outdated material in there that people don't read. And so people just kind of pass it over often. I took that book and then another book on pastoral ministry he wrote called An All-Round Ministry, which is less well-known. And I took basically the 10 greatest hits out of those two books and edited them. So provided introductory essays, footnotes, all that kind of stuff. That's coming out with H&E, Hesed and Emmett, okay. uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit later this year. Um, and so that's hoping to be an introduction to Spurgeon on pastoral ministry. So that's, I think the title Spurgeon on pastoral ministry lectures and addresses from the Prince of Preachers. And then, uh, two other projects I'm very excited about. One is an edited volume with Dr. Jeff Chang from Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the curator of the Spurgeon library, head of the Spurgeon center there. We're working on what is basically Nate, the first ever kind of theology of Spurgeon, a single volume going through heads of theology and, and other type things. Uh, we brought together a tremendous team of scholars and contributors. Um, so Jeff and I are co-editing the book. Um, I think we have 16, 17 guys contributing. So elite Spurgeon talent, uh, and then also some other just you know, top-notch historians who are writing from that era. That will come out BNH 2025. Uh, that manuscript's due pretty soon, actually. And then the project I'm most excited about uh, that I'm, I'm just beginning to talk about, been working on for a little bit, is um, a popular biography on Spurgeon. Uh, there hasn't been uh, one that's been uh, widely received in probably 40 years. There's been a few things written, but the last good one that uh, people would know about is probably Dalimore, Arnold Dalimore. Uh, and that's before this whole new wave of interest in Spurgeon, Spurgeon scholarship. So that's going to be aimed at the church. That's not a critical academic biography. Think 250 pages. Think, Nate, you quote Spurgeon. I've heard you preach before. You know, lady in the church comes up to you and says, hey, Who's this person you keep quoting? You know, I want to know about yeah. him. Uh, this is, I hope, will be the kind of biography you would give to them. So that is with Reformation Heritage as well. Look for that. 2025? Next year. Okay, great. Hopefully 2024. Yeah. That's what we're aiming for. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So. Lots, man, you got lots of writing to do. So um, that's that's exciting to hear. So pick up the book, uh, Spurgeon and the Poor. Um, yeah, uh, Alex, we really appreciate you coming on. I think. I mean, you've, you've hit on why I think this could be a really important topic for us to to pick up the book, to dive in. Obviously, search the scriptures as well. And uh, yeah, hopefully the Lord will use it to, for the good of his church and for the sake of the lost. Um, brother, appreciate you coming on. Amen, Nate. Thanks for having me, brother. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Swing One podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.